Uh, what do you think of when you hear the word freedom? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? What's the picture that you get when you hear me say freedom? Tell me. What do you picture immediately? Like, what's the first thing? Chains? Broken chains. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You're like a prisoner that's broken free, right? What else do you picture? Choice. choice. The freedom of choice, right? I can choose. Some responsibility, okay. Be honest. I have, I'm, a, I'm married to an American. Does anyone picture an American flag when freedom, right? Anybody? No. Yeah, you do. Okay, fair. Yeah. The bald eagle, maybe. Is there any, like, movie quotes that you first think of when you hear freedom? Yeah. There it is. Yeah, Braveheart. What's the quote? Freedom. freedom. <laughs> Except for how does he do it? Freedom. Ah, there you go. Freedom, right? Anybody picture, like, a season of life for you? Do you think back to a time where you remember being really free? Does anybody, like, actually have a formative experience? Not a formative, maybe bad or good. I don't know if it was a good formative experience, but when you first left home and you went to university, remember that feeling if you did that and you felt for the first time in your life, I am free, you know, I, 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 I'm finally broken away from the chains of my parents' responsibilities in my home and their rules and their constraints and I can stay up as late as I want and no one's going to tell me no. I can do whatever I want and no one's around to keep an eye on me. You remember that? Have you had seasons like that where you just felt free to just do what you please, right? The 60s, man. Anybody? Anybody around in the 60s? Yeah, woo! I saw those hands, those freedom hands over here. I wasn't around in the 60s, but I've heard things about the 60s. John? The what? I'm the product, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I'm living in the consequences of the 60s, aren't I? But the 60s like, were a decade of, of what? Like just, just f- like a pursuit of freedom, right? Like sexual freedom and do all the drugs and have a great time and listen to the Beatles. Were the Beatles in the 60s? I don't even know. That's how ignorant I am. Yeah, the Beatles, right? That was the thing. And Woodstock, is that the 60s? Okay. Freedom, right? Last week, um, last week we defined the flesh. We talked about the flesh. We're, um, we're talking about a few things here. We're talking about deceptive ideas that lead to disordered desires that lead to sinful societies. And quite a few weeks ago, Pastor Ian talked about deceptive ideas. And then last week, what we talked about is what deceptive ideas do is they lead to disordered desires. And so in the scriptures, um, it, they use the language of the flesh. And what we talked about last week was that sometimes when we grow up in like Christian subculture, we think of the flesh, we think of like all the bad things you do, right? But the, but the scriptures understanding of the flesh isn't necessarily the bad things you do. The scriptures um, uh, language of the flesh is actually the thing that leads you to do the bad things, right? It's the thing inside every single one of us that we all know is there. It's the reason why we want to do some good things and then we end up doing less good things. It's the reason why we say on Friday night, we're going to get up on Saturday and work out, work out, and on Saturday morning, we wake up and we don't work out, right? It's the reason why we have New Year's resolutions that we're never going to go through McDonald's drive through again, and then within a week, that's like the regular you know, meal that we're eating, right? It's, it's the reason why we, we, we know what we want written on our tombstone when we die, but then we like live a totally different way. 
and we feel gross about it, we feel shamed about it, we feel frustrated with it. That's what the flesh is. In the scriptures, the flesh is the part of you that can't seem to do the thing you know you should do or do the right thing or do the good thing. And in, in the scriptures, what it's referring to is, um, is a disordered desire. And so the, the, the example that the scriptures gives when it refers to the flesh are, um, are kind of like the, the animalistic desires that you have inside of you. We talked about that last week. The carnal desires, the, the, uh, the drive for sex, for food, for pleasure, for, for control. These are part of who you are as a human, they're part of who you are as an animal, right? Like we're, we are animals, we're similar but very different to other animals and we have similar drives. We need to eat just like our dogs do, right? We wanna procreate just like our dogs do, right? We, we want control just like our dogs do, but there's something different about us. We, we have a soul, we have, something, we have something called consciousness that separates us, but it doesn't mean we don't have similar drives, similar desires, similar animalistic needs, carnal needs. And, and what we talked about last week is that those needs are not wrong, right? Like you got to eat or you die, right? And to procreate is not a bad thing to want. And sex is pleasurable because it produces something really good and that there's nothing wrong with it in this proper context, right? That's a good thing. It's a good desire. It's a good drive. The drive for control is a good thing. Like we talked about in the Judeo-Christian worldview, Genesis, um, it talks about how humans were made for the purpose of subduing the earth. And what that means is that we were made for the purpose of taking the raw materials of the world and cultivating them, right? Controlling them, manipulating them to create something, right? That's what your work is. You realize every single one of your work, all of you, everything that we do as work is taking raw materials, either the raw materials of like kids who are dumb and don't know anything, or the raw materials of people who are broken and messy and it's chaotic, or the raw materials of basically like a coding language that's meaningless unless you bring order to it, or the raw materials of like soil and seeds and water, right? And, and you cultivate it, you control it, you manipulate it, and you get an outcome, right? That's what, that's what work is. So the, dr the drive to control something is not a bad thing, right? It, it's, it's deeply seated. It's part of our animalistic desire. It's, it's, it's actually like central to, to, to who we are and what we're made for, and it's a good thing. And it's deeply embedded in us. Like the most core part of your brain is like, it controls those drives, right? And then our brain has grown over years and, and has reached a point where we have um, consciousness, and so we can make decisions on what's good and what's bad. But, but our consciousness and our understanding of what's good and what's bad is constantly competing with that animalistic part of our brain that's just like, food, give it to me now, you know? Sex, I want it, you know? Control, grab it. And there's this constant fighting within us. There's a constant uh, jockeying for position of desires is the language, right? And so the part of us that seems to prioritize one set of desires over another, or another way to put it is, um, is the part of us that puts one type of desire in the driver's seat that shouldn't be in the driver's seat. That's what the, the scriptures uh, calls the flesh. Does that make sense? So it's not the bad things you do. It's the part of you that you're all aware of that leads you to do the thing that is the lesser good instead of do the thing that's the better good. Does that make sense? There's another wrong with love in it, but it's a part of us. Today, we're gonna uh, add on to that conversation. Today, we're talking about freedom when we talk about um, the flesh, and we're gonna, we're gonna expand that out a little bit today. 
in uh, most ancient and contemporary um, philosophical traditions, there's kind of two versions of freedom. The first version of freedom is a negative freedom, is what we're going to call it. Negative doesn't mean that it's bad. Negative doesn't mean that it produces a bad outcome, although it does oftentimes. Um, what I mean by negative freedom is, uh, is permission, freedom as permission. You said it over here, choice, right? So the permission to make a decision, freedom. The, the, the freedom from the constraints, we talked about the, the, the chains, right, and the constraints. So, so freedom from this perspective is basically you, you are now, you're, you're now um, permitted to do what you couldn't do before, right? So you're free from boundaries. You're free from constraints. You're free from consequences, right? So that's one kind of freedom. And that's what we normally think of when we think of freedom. We think, do what I want, when I want, how I want, with no consequences, right? The other form of freedom in all ancient and contemporary philosophical traditions is uh, the f a more of a positive freedom. I'm going to call it positive freedom. And this is the freedom to do what is good. So philosophers and thinkers and theologians and scientists, they've been wrestling with this for, well, for all of humankind and all of human history. Like, what's better? What's more important? What is true freedom? Because the initial instinct is, do what I want, when I want, whatever I feel. But the reality is, I think we're all aware, and we're going to talk about that today, living free, fully free, doesn't necessarily produce good results, does it? I mean, you can start to take that to its logical end, and you can see, if you have children, and you're trying to raise children, you would understand, like, giving your children carte blanche freedom. Ugh. That's bad parenting, right? We need to have a conversation, right? So we understand the outcome of it. And so what philosophers and thinkers have been doing for a long time is trying to decide on, like, what is the most good? What is the most virtuous life? What is the best way forward? Because we actually all want to live that way. We actually want our life to reflect that. And that is where true freedom is found. A quote from the book that we've been looking through is called Live No Lies. It says, For most of the ancients, freedom was freedom from our natural desires and our material needs. And this is most religious traditions as well. This is like the core of Buddhism, right? It's freedom from any desire, freedom from anything material. A lot of traditions, ancient traditions, um, freedom was freedom from our natural desires and our material needs. It rested on a mastery of these deep natural urges in favor of self-control, self restraint, ed and education into virtue. So freedom then, for the purpose of this morning, is the power to properly order our desires. Freedom is the power to properly order our desires. If the flesh is the proclivity to prioritize our animalistic desires and give them the driver's seat in the car they shouldn't be driving, then freedom is what we find when we're able to live in contrast to that, when we're able to control that. Or freedom is the ability to do it, to say, no, you don't get the driver's seat. You're in the car, you're a part of me, it's not a bad thing, but there are constraints and there are boundaries around you, you don't get to drive the car, right? Last week we looked at um, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
Slavery from the Judeo-Christian perspective has a lot less to do with what others impose on you. When we think of slavery today, particularly because of the history in the West, we think of things that were imposed on certain people, controls, constraints that were imposed on certain people. But in the Judeo-Christian perspective, is it a lot more to do with the power to overcome the self, the flesh, than it does on what others have to do with you. The Jews, in the time of Paul writing this, uh, they were not necessarily free people. The Jews in the first century, um, they had their land and they had their temple they could worship in, but they also had the Roman army who oversaw everything they did. And so they didn't really have that much control and freedom like they expected, like they anticipated, like God promised them to have. So they felt like they were in this quasi-slave kind of relationship. They could do kind of what they wanted, but within certain boundaries. They couldn't go any further. They couldn't be fully free. So this is where Paul is writing. He's writing in the context of Jews and Christians being overseen by Roman overlords. And I don't know, I don't know how much history um, you've studied in your life, but I've not studied that much. The little that I have, the Romans weren't, um, they weren't nice people. <laughs> right? Anyone, like they were, you know, they, they was, it was the birthplace of all sorts of amazing things that, that we are living in the benefits of in Western culture. Um, but their means to producing it wasn't necessarily like love and grace and kindness, right? It was, it was often um, well, power and force, cruelty, torture. I mean, Jesus was killed on a Roman cross, right? That was, we don't see that happening today, do we? So we're probably a little bit more free than even Paul was. I mean, a lot more free than even Paul was. And he's writing in this time under that kind of regime. But for Paul, he understood his freedom. True freedom was uh, far deeper than the freedom from some sort of external source of oppression for Paul. For Paul, the primary battle was over his soul. And it was against his own flesh that had been deceived and manipulated in order to to disorder his desires in order to produce kind of a lesser outcome. That's how Paul understood the battle and understood slavery. Check out in Galatians, um, Galatians 6, verse 7 to 10. Paul's saying here that freedom, true freedom, is something that grows. And it's something that grows over time with decisions that are made. He says this in Galatians 6, 7 to 10. He says, uh, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh they'll reap destruction. And whoever sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. Eternal life there is not referring to life everlasting, even though it includes that. Eternal life is, he's referring to life, like the best life, right? The life that you were made for. The good life, living the good way. He said, let us not become weary in doing good, for at a proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Therefore, we have an opportunity Let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. It's here we see Paul uh, talk about the principle of reaping and sowing. And this is not uncommon. In Jewish tradition, they would have understood the principle of reaping and sowing. And we understand the principle of reaping and sowing, right? The compound interest, right? When you put a little bit in every single day, it grows over time. That's the idea here. And and what you you sow into something is what you eventually will reap, right? This is a, a human truth. This is a principle that every tradition understands. And so what he's talking about here, for Paul, he says freedom is freedom from the cravings that control him. 
It's freedom from that quote-unquote flesh. It's freedom to live the good life, to do what's right. And he's saying that it's something that needs to be sown. It's something that you need to like invest into, basically. It's not something that comes natural to you. And this is no, you all know this, it doesn't come natural to you. So something that needs to be invested into, right? Me putting money aside in savings does not come natural to me. I don't know about you. It's really unnatural to me. Super unnatural to me, right? I'm really good at finding ways to spend that money every month. It's something that you have to invest in. You have to sow into. You have to predetermine you're going to do because there's parts of me that I let drive the car that are not going to produce the end of financial security and freedom, right? A disordered desire. Just like my physical health, it's, it's, it's a matter of reaping and sowing. We talked about this last week with my friend Luis who was here. Luis and I, we love McDonald's. We're the only ones in the room who love McDonald's, I've heard, because no one else, no one else like set us free from that. Nobody else came and said, don't worry, bro, I'm with you. So apparently just Luis and I love McDonald's and, and, uh, and we wrestle with it. And, and, and what, the example I gave last week was that, was that there's something in me that tells me every time I go to McDonald's, it's not that big of a deal. It's not going to negatively impact my health, Right? And then a decade later, through my 20s into 30, I'm like, no, no, that's, that was a lie every time, right? It was a deceitful idea. What is this? Yet, I still want to go through the, uh, the McDonald's drive-thru. Small steps in the right direction and then uh, with the right decisions over time leads to monumental change, right? But small steps in the wrong direction in accordance with something that might be a deceitful idea, like McDonald's isn't that bad for you, leads to... Um, well, a significant change in a negative direction. So with each small step, the next one gets a little bit easier and leads to produce a transformed life and produces change. Check out this quote from the book. I want to read this for you. The longer we continue to make the wrong decisions, the more our heart hardens. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Your heart hardens towards everything else, right? You get more sure of it, more certain of it. You ever met someone who they're like so sure they make bad decisions? I have a, fr- this is a tangent, whatever. I have a, fr- I have a friend, um, and it was sad. I have a friend who reached out to me this last week again, and this is a friend for the last decade of his life has been really convinced of certain ideas. And ten years ago, I was like, those are bad ideas, man. Like those are really bad ideas, and he was so certain of them. And um, I won't tell you what the ideas are, but he. Um, it wasn't just something he was coming up with, and it wasn't something that was obviously a bad idea. This is something he was learning from others, like university professors learning from others. And they were saying, hey, th- this is okay. Living this way is okay. Living this lifestyle is okay. This poor guy, man, 10 years later, he's been struggling and struggling all along, and, and he's still convinced of these ideas. He reached out to me this last week, and um, he said, hey, do you have any advice for me because I'm in $15,000 of debt, I'm going to lose my house, I'm probably going to be homeless I've got no job, I can't work right now, and my per- the partner I was in a relationship with for five years just broke up with me over email because they went to LA. He's like, total rock bottom, right? And he asked me for advice. I'm like, I don't even know what to say. Right? I don't even know what to say. Because his heart is so hardened towards what I've been saying for, for 10 years, right? Obviously, and, and the more steps he made in that direction, the harder his heart got towards it, right? I, don't, I honestly, he's a really good friend of mine. I love him. I don't know how to bring him back. I don't know how to help him. 
don't know what to say to him right now. I'm going to try to feed him if we can, but like that's, that's all I can do right now because his heart is so hardened to other ways of seeing things, other ways of doing things, right? The longer we continue to make wrong decisions, the more our heart hardens. The more that we make the right choices, the more our heart softens. Or better yet, it becomes alive. Each step in life increases my self-confidence, my integrity, my courage, my conviction. It can also increase my capacity to choose the desirable alternative. Until eventually I become, it becomes more and more difficult for me to choose the undesirable option rather than the desirable action. What he's saying here is basically every decision we make doesn't just have a negative impact on the outcome. It has a negative or positive impact on the ability to make that decision again, right? It says, on the other hand, each act of surrender and cowardice towards the flesh weakens me. It opens the path for more acts of surrender and eventually freedom is lost. Between the extreme when I can no longer do a wrong act and the extreme when I have lost my freedom to do the right action, there's innumerable degrees of freedom of choice. Most people fall in the art of living, not because they're inherently bad or anything, but because they don't wake up to the reality that every choice that they're making every day is leading in one direction or another, right? The, the, the difference between who this man that I was talking about would be today if he started making good decisions 10 years ago and, and, and with the situation he's in today has nothing to do with a snap decision, right? It's to do with years and years and years and years and years and years of small little decisions, believing a deceitful idea. And now, like, our lives look so different. They looked very similar 10 years ago. And they look so different. And, like, I feel like I'm a pretty free person. I don't know if you've met me and you think the same. Like, you seem like a pretty chill, free dude, right? Like, I don't, you know, I'm obviously a little overweight and I'm terrible with my money, but <laughs> long way to go, right? Lots of growth to happen. But, I, you know, I think we, like, we live a pretty fulfilled life and a pretty joy-filled life. And it's not because of something special. It's not because of something extraordinary. It's not because of a moment, right? It's because of a series of choices over a long period of time. We're calling the series that we're teaching through Becoming a Non-Anxious Presence. The reason why we're calling it that is because, well, one, we believe Jesus was a non-anxious presence. We believe that well, we're Christians here, like people who, who go to church are typically Christians, and so they're following the example of Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's a Christ follower, and, and Jesus lived a life that was not anxious, right? Like, if Jesus was the Savior of the world, and he knew all the problems in the world, he only did ministry for three years, and he was a pretty chill dude while he did it, while he did it right? Like, so you look at the life of Jesus, and you go, man, if anybody should be anxious, the guy taking on the sins of the world, he wasn't. So we look at Jesus and we go, well, he seemed to model a life that we're trying to pursue. It's a life of non-anxiousness. And the second reason we're particularly talking about it is because anxiety seems to be such a universal concern in the West. And what I think we're proposing, and many are proposing today, is that that might be the result of a negative kind of freedom, a permissive type of freedom that we've been chasing in the West for a long period of time. And it might just be the results of that kind of freedom that we've been pursuing. The challenges that we're seeing are not new ones. Ancients have been thinking about these ideas for a long time, for thousands of years. If you read any ancient wisdom, they're going to talk about this idea. 
There's plenty to read on it. The problem isn't that this is new. The problem isn't that this is a new problem and that anxiety is a new thing and that making poor decisions or struggling with your flesh is a new thing. The problem, I think, with our particular cultural moment is that we've chosen to basically try to live without any of the ancient traditions or wisdom. We've said, no, I think we got it now. We've got technology. It's all we need. And what we've done was we've abandoned ancient wisdom. Ten years ago, I was a kid on YouTube watching YouTube debates between atheists and Christians and, and apologists. And, and, the, and the atheists, what they were doing was they were creating straw man arguments to basically dismantle a you know, way of thinking, a Christian way of thinking that, in, from my perspective, was not even true Christianity. But, but they did an effective job at that. And their goal, ten years ago, four horsemen, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Lawrence Krauss is part of that crew now, right? Their goal was to basically start a new program of humanity without any of the religious baggage. Because the perspective was that, well, religion is the problem. We've been doing that for 10 years now. And like, I've been following it, I've been paying attention, it's mattered to me. How do you think that's going? Do you think that freedom, like that freedom from constraint and that freedom from boundaries is taking us anywhere good? Do you think getting rid of all ancient tradition and all ancient wisdom uh, that is religion, that's what it is, do you think that's been working well for us? It's clearly not because our teenagers are more anxious than they've ever been by a long shot. I did youth ministry for 10 years. Why is it that every stinking kid has anxiety? Like shouldn't, shouldn't only a few of them have anxiety and there's a reason for it? And if they all have anxiety, do any of them have anxiety? Because what is anxiety if we all have it? What is going on? But there's something going on. It's freedom without constraint. It's freedom without ancient wisdom. It's freedom without proper boundaries. It's freedom without actually checking our desires and prioritizing them properly. St. Augustine, he learned this the hard way. 1,500 years ago, he's one of the greatest thinkers in Western culture, St. Augustine. I'm reading a book um, on the road with St. Augustine by a guy named James K. A. Smith. And he talks about freedom. Augustine talked a lot about freedom. This is one of the quotes from the book. It says, When you've been eaten up by your own freedom and realize the loss of guardrails only meant ending up in the ditch, you start to wonder whether freedom is all it's cracked up to be or whether freedom might be something other than the absence of constraint and the multiplication of choice. He goes on to say that freedom, i.e. the removal of constraints, started to feel like a punishment for Augustine. The obliteration of boundaries looked like, obliteration, it looked like liberation to a young Augustine, just like your teenage kids. Don't tell me what to do, Mom. Liberate me. That's what's best. I know best, right? As a young Augustine, he thought... The obliteration of boundaries was liberation. But what ended up happening over time is he felt himself dissolving in the resulting amorphousness. The language he's using there is that he felt himself basically dissipating into like nothingness. There was nothing to tie him down to anything. I don't know about you. Uh, does anybody like pho here? Pho? Yeah, right? Who doesn't like pho? You, the white people in the room, might be like, you mean pho, right? It's pho. It's pronounced pho. It's Vietnamese pho. Anybody go to a pho restaurant before? Pho, P-H-O, right? You've been, to, you've been to pho. Anybody? Nobody? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. You ever order off a pho menu? 
Yeah, it's, <laughs> first time I went, I was so lost. You're flipping pages, right? Like, wait, 934, item 10,743, item 1 million, 200. How many things could they possibly have on their menu, right? And you go, every, every, verif- every variation of dish is its own menu item. And so when you first go, you're overwhelmed by choice. Like you're overwhelmed by the reality that you could pick any one of these things, but you can only pick one of them, and what are you going to pick? Because there's so many options. I used to do this thought experiment with my friend Stu. It wasn't a thought, it was just a contemplation, really. We were sitting there like trying to understand freedom, and we were like, man, could you imagine going to a restaurant where they had every single thing in the entire world on the menu, but you had to choose one thing to eat? Now, some of you in the room... You're like chicken nuggets and fries. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's just how you eat, right? But those who like food in the room, can you imagine? You get one choice, and it's an infinite amount of possibilities. What are you going to choose? Oh man, I'd be exhausted. I'd spend the whole day trying to make that decision, and I still couldn't. Because I like food, and I like a lot of kind of food. If you took me to a restaurant and the only thing they served there was kale. At least I don't have a choice to make, right? It's like, might suck, right? Might be eating kale, but they made the decision for me. It's healthy, right? So I'll, I'll gnaw on some kale. I'll get over it. won't be that pleasurable, but I'll be healthy, right? And what I'd keep doing probably is go back to that restaurant because somebody's made a decision for me. It's a lot easier. And I'd feel a lot less anxious, wouldn't you? You show up. Here's your menu. Kale. <laughs> it's a, you know what you're going to get, and you know the outcome is you're going to be the healthiest person in the room, right? There's no decision to make there. There's no anxiety around a decision and then anxiety about having made the poor decision. When I go to a restaurant and they have salads on the menu, I usually don't order the salad. And then I get anxious about not ordering the salad after. Thankful, because salad sucks, but also anxious because I should have ordered the salad after, right? This is making sense. I'm not the only one in this room, right? For Augustine, freedom had nothing to do with um, freedom from. That was not healthy. And he actually would see that as foolish. If we took almost any ancient philosopher today and put them in our cultural conversation, they'd hear the things people say and they go, that is so stupid. Like, you do, do, do whatever makes you feel right, do whatever feels good. Be like, that's a disaster, right? We're not thinking about this but it is a disaster. It's just absolute foolishness. For Augustine, freedom was about self-mastery, not about self-indulgence. Self-mastery, not about self-indulgence. It was about being able to overcome the temptation to do what's good, best, right, not about doing whatever he felt. And the lack of constraints for Augustine was the quickest path to slavery for him which is why he devoted his life to the study of spiritual formation and the concept of freedom. The other thing about freedom is it's not something that you can argue towards. It's not something you can think your way towards. Freedom, for Augustine and many who've come after, is actually something you have to work your way towards. Something you have to practice your way towards. 
It's something that you have to desire, and your desire is produced by certain behaviors perpetually. It's something that you have to sow into, is the biblical language that we looked at this morning. Read this quote. It says, you sow a thought and you reap a deed. Every single one of the things you choose to do, there is a thought. Whether you're conscious of it or not, there's a thought that happens and it produces that choice that you make. So you, so you sow a thought and you reap a deed. The other um, quote, by the way, the circle one. You sow a deed and you reap another deed. You sow some more deeds and you reap a habit. You sow some more habits and you reap a character. You sow a character and you reap two thoughts. The new thoughts then pursue a career of its own. We're so anxious today because we've sown so many deceptive ideas and thoughts. And we've lived out of them. And we've reaped the deeds of them. That's at least what we're saying is the thesis of this conversation. And what it does is produce patterns of living and rhythms and lifestyles that are producing anxiety in us. They're not helping us become the people we really want to become. They're helping us become something other than that. The other thing that's interesting about this is that um, we live in a very individualistic culture. So so we think that the answer is to fix these problems on our own and then present ourselves to our community. And that's also not in accordance with what Christian or the biblical tradition is. The Christian tradition is that you have a flesh that you need to fight and you're responsible to fight against so that you can be the person God intended you to be. That's what the Christian tradition is. And that you're responsible for that and God holds you responsible for that. That's the tradition. But... The tradition is also that you have a community of people to do that with. That's what the church is. That's what it's supposed to be. The Apostle Paul, he talks about reaping and sowing, particularly life of the Spirit is the language he uses, and I'm sure we'll talk about that quite a bit more in the future. But he says this in Galatians 6, chapter 1, or chapter 6, verse 1 to 6. He says, Brothers and sisters, if someone's caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves. You may also be tempted. He says, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks that there is something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructors. We're individually responsible for the choices that we make. We're individually responsible for what we end up reaping because of what we sow. But we're not alone in doing it. That's what the church is always meant to be. And I don't know what kind of baggage you grew up with. I don't know what kind of church background you grew up with. I don't know if you've left religion or faith in some time in your lifetime when your parents did and there was a reason for it. Maybe you just thought of people at church as being judgmental. Maybe you just thought of people being self-righteous. And maybe they were. Probably they were, right? Because they're broken people, right? But the other side of the coin there is that where do we go to have a community of people who are bold and courageous and loving enough to call us on our crap? 
Where do we go to find a community who is also committed to reordering desires in a way that produce life and life to the full? Where do we go for that? Twitter's a disastrous place to go for that, right? It's the community of God that that's supposed to be safe to do that within. We're supposed to do this together. That's what the church is supposed to be. That's why it exists, is to help us carry one another's burdens, wrestle through these things together, reorder our desires in a way that produces life, eternal life, and life to the full. And when we're able to do that, what ends up happening is the community of God, when the community of God, when the church is at its best, they become a light in their community. They become a presence in their community that is so different and unique because each individual person is carrying the responsibility of fighting against their flesh and then together we're doing that and we become a group of people who are doing a better job at ordering our desires. It could make a real difference. So self-mastery isn't done alone. It's not done with a self-help book from Indigo. Character formation isn't alone. It's not done in a closet in your room. Your quiet time with God has an impact on it. But freedom itself also isn't achieved alone. So what we're inviting people into at Southside, you may know this, you may not know this, is we're inviting our community into a journey. It's a multi-year journey, multi-multi-year journey, hopefully a lifelong journey, but we'll get there when we get there. Um, we're inviting people into a journey of actually taking seriously the types of practices, the types of ways of thinking, the types of conversations, the types of gathering, the types of teaching that's going to help us become the people who God made us to be. Help us become people who are able to properly order our desires. Because we believe if we're able to properly order our desires, the top of the list will be loving others selflessly. And the top of the list of desires will be giving generously. And the top of the list of desires will be caring for those who need help. And the top of the list of the desires will be to be people of peace and joy and patience and gentleness and kindness and love and self-control. That's what the fruits of the Spirit are. And so what we need to do, because we're living in a space and a time that's not necessarily helping us become that, we need to be people who are willing to practice that with one another and enter into readjusting our lives and readjusting our lifestyles and readjusting our rhythms of living in order to see that produced in our life. And that's where we're heading as a church. So when you hear the language of practicing the way, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about practicing the way of Jesus, all based on this fight, this battle with the flesh in order to live the life that we were always made to live. I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're going to give a chance for Q&A if anybody has any questions or responses. There was a good response that Jeff had last week that he didn't feel the chance to share. If you have a response or a question, this is your chance to share it. And, uh, and then we're going to sing one more song. Are we going to be able to do that? Awesome. Let's do that. Lord Jesus, um, yeah, I'm, here, I'm here because I trust, that you're, I trust that you are who so many have said you are, which is, which is God incarnate. I trust that you're, you're the perfect example of what it means to be human, and you're, you're who we're supposed to follow because you're our, you're our Savior. You are, in fact, God. And, uh, and in our pursuit of God, we find you, and if we follow you, you produce in us the version of us 
that you intended as our created for us to be. And so I submit to that, and I want to pursue that, and I want to pursue that with the community of people who are serious about that, and I, um, and I also want to help a community of people get serious about it. So I ask that you help me and that you lead me by your Holy Spirit to become the very person you've called me to be and to help others become that. And then I ask that for this church. Lord, there's so many hurting, broken, confused people. There's so many lonely people everywhere around us. They're walking by the front of this building by the thousands. And they're just dying for some light and some love, some truth and some goodness. They're wrestling with themselves and they're blaming everybody else, but they're really, they're just wrestling with themselves and it's exhausting and they're anxious. And God, I think we have a way out of that. I think we have a way through that that we can offer people. So help us as we become what you've intended us to become to actually help those around us become what you've intended them to become. And all this we submit to you, Lord, trusting in you, trusting in your ways. And trusting that true freedom is found in your ways. Amen. Is there any questions or any response? You mentioned negative freedom and positive freedom. Give us a word definition or maybe an example. Yeah, negative freedom, think of permission. Right? So freedom from. And then positive is freedom for. So when you're free from something, sometimes freedom from something allows you to be free for something. But when you're thinking about freedom, you need to be able to distinguish, what am, I, am I being freed from? Am I freeing freedom from something here? Or is it freeing for something here? Israel, for example. Israel, Israel got this wrong. Israel, um, in the Old Testament, thought that, they're, that they were set free by God. They were given all these promises for themselves, right? And so negative freedom is thinking of freedom as something for me. Does that make sense? It's kind of like getting expelled from university versus graduating. Sure. <laughs> yeah, you're free both ways, right? Yeah. Um, freedom for something. So Israel, what they got wrong was they thought of the promises of God as being for them. And it was for them, but it was actually for them to take to others, right? They were given promises for the purpose of, not just for the promises. The, the promises were a means to an end, which was to be a blessing to the world, right? So that's the two ways to think about freedom. Freedom from, the negative freedom is permission to do whatever you want. Paul talks about it, he kind of says, um, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. All things are permissible, freedom, in the negative sense. Doing things that are beneficial, freedom in the positive sense. Is that a little more clear? Okay.